0: All right, we are going to start in Genesis 3, and then we'll be in uh, Isaiah 64 uh, pretty quick uh, after that, so you can open up to either one of those, not Luke chapter 12, which is where we've been for uh, a while, uh, doing things a little bit differently Uh, this morning. uh, We're stepping out of the book of of Luke, Uh, although the, the book of Luke the last few weeks serves as a great launching point for what series is. Uh, going to be. We're officially post-Thanksgiving. We're in the full Christmas swing, and uh, and that is where we're heading. Now, there's not an Advent wreath or candle up here for us to light today because this is one of the rare years where the first Sunday after Thanksgiving is still not officially in the Advent season. That will start next Sunday, and so we'll be full-throated into Advent uh, next week. But this week serves as a bit of an introduction as to where we're going to go for the month. And I've talked about this a little bit over the course of the last Uh, the last few weeks. But this is my 12th year doing Christmas, uh, doing a Christmas series here at Providence. And uh, I'll be honest, when I first became a pastor, first started teaching regularly, one of the things that I look forward to the most was being able to to preach uh, uh, Christmas messages. I was very much looking forward to that, Uh, thought I had some really cool and great ideas. Uh, That was 2011 where that started. By 2013, I think I was out of ideas. I think I had I had used all of my creativity at that point, and so uh, ever since then, every every year whenever we've gotten to Christmas, it's felt a little bit like, okay, now what? What are we going to to, to do? Because um, it's hard not to get up here and sound repetitive and just preach the same messages year after year after year. I don't want to do that. Uh, I want to be able to talk about some different. Uh, different aspects of it. However, I also found a deep comfort in revisiting these same texts every year. Uh, I, you've heard me say plenty of times that repetition is the mother of all learning. And I think having this Advent season built into our church calendar where we have to stop and acknowledge the incarnation uh, of Jesus is a powerful thing for us where, uh, you know, we've, we've, we talk about it. This is going to be the, the 12th time. You know, if this wasn't built into our calendar, we may have talked about it four or five times. But to do it 12 times means we have to come back and revisit this uh, central event of our, uh, our uh, uh, of our faith. And so coming into this, I said, God, what is it that you want the pe- uh, our, our people here at Providence to hear? What is it that we want to be able to go through? What is it that we want to be able to, uh, to think about and to work through to, together? And I know that this year has been... A very hard year for many in our church family and the last thing I wanted to do was get up here and plaster some Christmas platitudes and uh, about being jolly and, and just kind of move on because I know that wasn't going to su- suffice for, for most of us uh, in this room. And to be honest, I'm not sure that it really does it for uh, anyone. There's just kind of like background noise for much of the Christmas Season. So, what I want to do this morning is introduce you to the theme that will that will kick off our Advent season that officially starts next week. And like I said, it's not a typical sermon; going to be a little bit short. Um, but uh, what what I want to do is kind of give you a good feel for things. So, if you're a visitor and this is your first time here, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, don't assume that I am usually this short. Or our service is typically this short, but it'll give you a good feel for how we. Uh, we do things. We've been in the book of Luke since this Sunday last year. That's when we launched our series in the book of Luke, and we've been in it almost every week since then, and we are through chapter 12. So that gives you a sense of uh, how we have done and how we have gone through all of this. Um, just finished it with a with a bit of a bang in chapter 12. Uh, we had all kinds of talk about judgment and fire and learning how to interpret the time and prepare your Heart, that's where we left off uh, last week. And what I told you last week is that that idea, preparing your heart and knowing the time, that would be the theme for the coming months and weeks, weeks, months, and and probably the coming year here at Providence. Knowing the time. Uh, In part because it's going to happen all throughout the book of Luke. We're going to talk about this idea. Uh, but in this season of Advent, we're going to take Jesus' exhortation to know the time and we're going to let it be kind of our guiding principle for the next couple of weeks as we think about Christmas. And if you're like, well, wait a minute, what does Christmas have to do with, with knowing the time? Christmas is like this standalone event that we can reflect on. What is that supposed to do to help us, quote unquote, know the time better, be more aware of where we are in God's uh, God's timeline. This is what's so great about the Christmas story and, and doing this every year uh, without fail is that there are so many ways that you can approach the idea of the incarnation. The story of Christmas is so, so much bigger than a baby and a manger and Mary and Joseph and a few angels. There is so much more going on here. In fact, uh, the, the the Christmas story in many ways begins in in Genesis 1 and maybe even more specifically in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember going back to Genesis chapter 3, uh, Adam and Eve have taken a bite of the fruit. They have been deceived by the serpent and God comes and he finds Adam and he finds Eve and he, he finds them hiding and then he He kind of pronounces on them. He says, you know, what have you done? Uh, and, the, and, the, and then he kind of pronounces uh, a curse on Eve. He, he pronounces a curse on, on Adam and then he also turns and he says something to the serpent. And this is Genesis chapter three, verse uh, verse fifteen. And just as a as a side note, uh, I am using a bit of a different translation for the for the month. I'm going to use the the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, uh, instead of the ESV. Just wanting to try some things out, kind of give it a shot for the month and see how it goes. And maybe we'll stick with it. Maybe we won't. Won't. I, li- I like a lot of the things about the ESV, but I also like a lot of things about the the CSB. So if you want to know more about that, we can talk about that. But just. Just a note if you've got an ESV and it reads a little bit different. But Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says this. I will put hostility between you and the woman. This is God talking to the, the serpent. I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So this is what is known as the, the proto-gospel. The first kind of hint of the gospel that is to come. Where it talks about how, how the, the offspring of, uh, of Eve will one day strike the head of the, the serpent. And since that day, all of creation was put into a position of waiting. Waiting for the day when this prophecy would come true. When Jesus would, would, would strike or crush or bruise, depending on your translation, Satan's head. And then, as God's plan unfolds throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we see time and time again that God calls His people uh, to wait. I think about, uh, I think about like uh, whenever He comes to, to Abraham and He says, "I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the uh, than the sand on the on the shore, than the stars in the sky." And then Abraham doesn't hear anything from him uh, from God for 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 twenty years. He hears nothing, and Abraham is basically just told, "Just wait." And I promise you, I will do it. And then time and time again, this story comes up in individual stories. And then in the greater story of God's people in the Old Testament, they are called to wait. One Advent devotion that I I began reading uh, this week says it this way. God's people are a waiting people. I wonder how you would have filled that in. If you were given that sentence in a fill in the blank, There was God's people are a blank people i 'm going to bet you probably wouldn't have put waiting in there that that is a a a definitive characteristic of the people of God. We are a waiting people. I want you to listen to this uh, this cry from the old testament this is isaiah sixty four i 'm going to read one through nine so this is a pretty good chunk but i 'm going to read isaiah sixty four one through nine I want you to listen to the cry uh, that is that is built into uh, the the, the people 's cry here in this prophecy it says Isaiah 64 one says, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence, just as fires, fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that the nations would tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence from ancient times no one has heard, no, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. You, you welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways, but we have sinned and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean, and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. No one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt because of our iniquity. Yet, Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We all are the work of your hands." Lord, do not be terribly angry or remember our iniquity forever. Please look, all of us are your people. I hope that whenever you read that prayer, you hear the longing that is in the voice there. Please, God, don't remember our iniquity. Please, God, don't remember all of our sins. In verse 4, it says that God acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. And then this prayer is an act of waiting and hoping. Verse 1, it says, If only you would rend the heavens, if only you would open the heavens and come down. If only. God, we are hoping, we are praying, we are longing, we are waiting for you to do this. If you would do that, then we would see you, we would know you, our enemies would tremble, and we would revere you the way we should. If you would only come down from heaven and come to us. Verse 9, but don't be angry. Don't remember our sin forever. Please, we are your waiting people. We are waiting. We are hoping. That is the theme of that prayer. And that prayer contains the riddle of the Old Testament. How does a holy God hold back his anger? How does a holy God not pour out his wrath on the sins of his rebellious creation, which he has said he would do? The question of verse 5 haunts us. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? And it haunts us because the question has its answer built into it. We can't. We cannot be saved so long as we are in our sins. We are hopeless. Yet as Isaiah writes this, this prophecy and this prayer... He waits in hope. His people wait in hope. So how can a hopeless people wait in hope? This is, in part, the Christmas story. No manger here, but make no mistake about it. This is what Christmas is all about. That God would open the heavens and come down. That he would open the heavens and he would descend. You say well hang on just a second. This prayer says that he would open the heavens and he would come down and that the earth would quake and that the fires would rain and that he would stand in in power and triumph over everything and the enemies would tremble and all of these things would happen. Yes, that that is true and this is how the biblical prophecies work. In this one this one section, this one prayer, you have one part that is answered, the whole answer to the question of sin is answered by Jesus in his first advent. His second advent, advent means coming, in his first coming, the problem of sin is dealt with. In his second coming, this is when we will see Jesus in all of his glory, and the earth will quake and his enemies will fall at his feet. But that has not happened Yet. So in this one thing, this one prayer, we see two aspects of the coming of Jesus. One tied to the first coming, one tied to the second coming. And this is how this works. And so the hope that is in this prayer is that God would come down and act on those, on behalf of those who wait in hope. That our iniquity, our sin would not remain to become our judgment, but that God our Father would remember our sins no more. This is the Christmas story. We recognize aspects of this part of this prayer when we sing songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or what we just sang, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And we, we look, and, 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 and those songs are meant to be a reflection of exactly how that begins in, in uh, Isaiah 64 there, where it says, if only you would come, if only you would come down. This is O come, O come, Emmanuel, and this is come thou long-expected Jesus. And while we can historically look back and see that, that God's people have longed for their Messiah, the question then becomes, what about us? Are we simply singing these songs as a historical reflection of God's people waiting on their Messiah to come? What about us? Where does that leave us? Are we still a waiting people? Since Jesus has come, what kind of people are we? Are we a post-Christian people? A post-evangelical people, whatever whatever you want to put in there. There are many in this nation that would say that, that, that they, are, they would very much like to see that this be true, that we be a post-Christian people, that we move on past Jesus, that Jesus is a historical figure from thousands of years ago that said some good things, did some good things, and that we can learn from him, but we need to move on. We are post-Jesus now. So are we a post-Jesus people or are we a satisfied people? Jesus has come. prophecies fulfilled. Everything's kind of, all the boxes have been checked, and so we can look back and we can say, oh, we're good. We're good. Yeah, we believe in this Jesus. This is good. But that's kind of as far as it goes there. Yay, good for us. We can be good Christians and we can say, "Woohoo, that's good. Satisfied in the sense, not in a good way like we're content, but satisfied more like when a parade is over. Do you know what I mean? Like, Like, okay, that was fun, what's next? Let's gather our stuff and move on. I'd argue this is how the vast majority of Christians live their day-to-day life. Now, I don't think if you were to ask most Christians, they would say this is what they believe. They wouldn't admit it, but they live their life like this. Jesus is cool. What Jesus did was cool. Those prophecies are amazing. It's great he fulfilled those prophecies what's next for my life what do I need to do now let me just get on with the rest of my life and and the historical fact that Jesus did this is great we can say that's wonderful and then we just kind of go about our lives doing our own thing I think this is how most even those that would claim to be Christians and, and and Christians themselves would say this is this is how they live Jesus is cool that's great what's next or are we now a victorious people? Now that Jesus has come, has he fulfilled the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3? Has he delivered the, 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 the strike to Satan's head uh, with the, the, of his death and his resurrection? And now we should live in victory? Is that the type of people we would... We, and, and I dare say that if I were to give you a fill in the blank that said that Christians are a blank type of people... I would bet that at least a few of you would fill in the blank with victorious. The Christians are a victorious type of people. That is the type of people we are. Or the fourth option, are we still awaiting people? Just like like God's people in the Old Testament, now in the New Covenant, we are still awaiting people. Even though Jesus has come, Is there something to that identity of God's people that is simply a part of who we are and even though Jesus has come, that hasn't gone away? Well, the theme of this series is that while we are a victorious people, that victory isn't quite fulfilled just yet. Not completely. We don't quite get to celebrate the the gusto of the victory just yet. We don't get that like post post-game locker room celebration in the sense that, 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 that the game is over, all is done, and we own that victory, walk out of the stadium completely victorious. In fact, living in this world can often feel anything but victorious. It can feel very much like we have been defeated at every turn. The reality is that the consequences of sin, Adam and Eve's sin, other people's sin, our own sin, all of those consequences are things that we have to wake up to every day. From hospitals, to chronic illnesses, to fractured marriages and families, to job loss, to financial struggle, to infertility, to orphanages, all of that is a result of a world broken by sin. And if those things exist, how can we call ourselves victorious? And yet we have the promise that the victory is ours. In 1 John chapter 5, John writes like this. He says, for, what is, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is truth. Who is the victorious one? The one who walks in faith, believing in Jesus Christ and what his blood has done on our behalf. We are victorious. So, how can we be a people who live with the consequences of sin, feel defeated by those consequences of sin every day, and yet we have this promise that we are conquerors of the world. We are victorious. Victorious people that don't feel much like we have a victory. Well, it kind of makes us the same as God's people throughout all of history. We are a waiting people. We are waiting on a victory that, though already achieved, we only get to take hold of partially. It's what theologians call the already, not yet, of the gospel. A victory already achieved, but not yet one that we can fully live in and take hold of. Paul shows us what this looks like in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is about to die. He's about to be beheaded for the gospel. He knows He's in prison, he's on his way to martyrdom, he's not getting out of this, he knows he's not getting out of this, and this is what he says. So, so again, in prison, about to be killed, and he knows he's about to be killed. That does not sound like a victorious person, right? It sounds like someone who has very much been defeated. This is what he says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is close. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. So Paul shows us how this already not yet thing works. He's about to be martyred for his faith, but he eagerly awaits the day that he can be with Jesus. And he tells us that we too should eagerly anticipate that day when we see Jesus or when he comes for us. This is how Paul maintains his hope and his joy in the midst of feeling the weight of a world that would make him feel anything but victorious. He is about to be a martyr, yet he does not despair. He looks to Jesus and he longs to see Jesus. He says, I long for the day and you should long for the day of his appearing. And that's what this series will be all about. It's going to be about the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, the one we talk about every year, the one with the baby in the manger. We'll talk about those stories. But it's also going to be about the second advent, the second coming, how one is tied to the other, and how God intends for us, his people, to be his His people now between these two Advents to live, and how both Advents should teach us challenge us shape us push us in the case of of the first advent pull us in the case of the the second advent and it should it should create a people uniquely positioned in this world between these two advents i wonder how much christmas shapes you i mean i know it shapes you right now i I know it shapes you right now like you, you, you go to the stores you see the stuff you, you change your diet for a month and you eat all kinds of like weird stuff and delicious stuff and you do different things during this time and you sing different songs and you, you listen to different stuff like on the, on the radio and your, your schedule is haywire and logistics for the month are a nightmare and, and everything gets changed for the next month. Like I, I realize that, 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 that Christmas shapes you in that way. But I wonder how else the first coming of Jesus shapes you. And perhaps a harder question you haven't spent as much time on is how does the second Advent shape you? How does the fact that Jesus will come again affect your life today when you leave this place today? If you're like me, probably not as much as it should. If you are over the age of, I don't know, maybe 30, probably the age of 35, if you're over the age of 35, you have probably heard a sermon, or seen a, a, a movie, or read a book that you now find completely ridiculous and cringeworthy about the second coming of Jesus. Somewhere along the way, uh, our generation, this time frame, became allergic to talking about the second coming of Jesus. We did not. We don't like talking about this stuff. I've been preaching here for twelve years. I don't think I've hardly even referenced the second coming of Jesus for all kinds of different reasons, in part because a lot of it sounds almost ridiculous to our ears because, because we got so familiar with things like, like hearing about how Mikhail Gorbachev was the next Antichrist and about how, how the USSR was like the, 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 the Mayblog and all this other stuff and, and, and hearing all these things. I sat in more than one sermon about how Jesus would come back by the year 2000, more than one. Sat in a bunch of those. You guys have, have watched movies that make you be like, oh my goodness, that is crazy. You've heard all kinds of different theories about raptures and millenniums and, and, uh, and tribulations and all this kind of stuff. And it has made so many people, me included, say, I don't want to have to deal with any of that stuff because it all sounds a bit ridiculous, right? You guys have all been there. I'm sure you've heard some of that stuff. But in doing that, we have that stuff has taken something from us that God intended us to have. Both the hope of the second coming of Jesus and the fear of it. So my hope is that we can, over the course of the next year, but maybe just in the course of the next couple of weeks, we can recapture all of that as we look back to the first advent, and then we look forward to the second advent, and we consider how those two things should shape our life today. How we can find hope and how we can find victory in the midst of darkness and in the midst of silence. And we can all pray together, come Lord Jesus. And that we can do it with gusto, not with a cringe, not with a, like a, a, a kind of a catch in our throat whenever we say it but we can say it and we can pray it and we can mean it because that is where our hope lies. So that's where we're going. I hope you'll be back for this. I hope you'll be a part of it. And I am convinced that talking about this and talking about something we don't talk about nearly enough will will grow your faith and give you hope and victory that, that maybe you have not experienced in a long time in this life. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the story of Christmas. I thank you for the first coming of Jesus. I thank you that we can all um, celebrate that. We can sing that in music. We can decorate our trees. We can decorate our homes. We can decorate our yards. And we can, we can feast during this time of year, uh, a feast that is appropriate with the, 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 the beauty of the first Advent. And I pray that we would dive deeply into that in the coming weeks. And Father, where we have neglected to consider the second advent, the second coming of Jesus and and, and all that will happen in those days, Father, I pray that you would help us to see clearly what you want us to know from that, that we would be encouraged by the fact that we have not been left here and that victory is in fact ours even when we feel so very much defeated. Father, help us to look forward to the day. Father, I pray that we would be pushed by the first coming, and that we would be drawn and pulled by the second coming. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.